1: Until fairly recently, consumers weren't really afforded getting financial advice until they had a certain amount of money that made it viable for advisors to serve them, and that was typically a reasonably high number, so you were kind of in fend-for-yourself mode until and unless you had half a million or a million dollars. That's changed a fair bit with technology enabling different types of services to be made available to more people. Hi, and welcome back
2: to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. My guest today is the co-founder and CEO of Sixpark, a leading Australian Robo Advice Investment Management Service. Hi there, Pat. Hi Phil, good to be here. Thank you very much for joining me. You worked at JP Morgan during the nineties and early two thousands, but you studied science and engineering. What's the story there?
1: I had the fortune of going to the University of Virginia in the States, Phil, and have a very good engineering school. And I had I had an aptitude during high school, probably tilted towards math and sciences, so you never really know at that age what you, or I don't think you know exactly what you're going to do, but I just thought an engineering degree at a good uni was a prudent thing to do. I studied systems engineering, which was as close to probably the application of engineering principles to management consulting. It was basically problem solving um, complex systems into simplified pieces. And I just thought that was a skill set that would resonate or be useful regardless of where I landed on the work front. I did have, a, uh, in the US, what they call a minor in commerce at the University of Virginia. So I did have a little bit of taste of the business world, but was kind of candidly making it up on the fly.
2: You worked in debt capital markets, investment banking, and private equity. Can you unpack that a little bit for people who have no idea? The listeners to this podcast have got no idea what goes on in the financial services industry, but what was it that you were actually
1: doing? Sure. In debt capital markets, Imagine a large U.S. corporation wants to finance its business by issuing debt. Typically, what it would do is go to a group of large banks. So Ford Motor Company might go to the you know, four or five largest banks and say, we're going to raise a billion dollars of debt to continue growing our business. And the investment banks would basically compete for a role to manage that process on behalf of the client, Ford and make sure that they got the debt raised from institutional investors at the most favorable terms for the client in this case Ford. So that's what the debt capital markets team did was go to the corporates and and basically convince them that in this instance JP Morgan was most qualified to lead that transaction and get the best terms and then provide liquidity in the aftermarkets whether it was debt capital markets or equity capital markets e.g. helping a company raise debt or helping a company raise equity through an IPO, you then need a trading and sales engine behind it to show that you can support those securities in the market. One of the rules I learned early in my time on Wall Street was a small number times a big number is a big number. So if you got the the mandate from Ford to help them raise a billion dollars of debt, and you charged a relatively small fee on that, it was a large number. And so it was incredibly competitive to get the lead roles in those deals. And frequently they were what they call club deals and that the Fords of the world would perhaps hire maybe three firms and have one lead the process. So they were kind of diversifying who was doing the work for them.
2: Companies can raise capital or money to operate with on the stock market. Or by raising debt, like you say, is that how it works? This is the the money that they would use to keep operating and to expand and to hopefully increase their business.
1: Yeah, from a high level, Phil, that's right. People invest in companies because they want the companies to grow. If companies grow, their share prices should grow accordingly. And there's you know industrial companies that may have a lower growth profile but need to continue to invest in growth. And then there's the big tech companies that are growing much more rapidly and consuming more capital, but Basically, you have two ways to finance the expansion of your business and to get the cash to invest in the areas you want to grow the business, and that's either debt or equity. So debt markets, this is something I'm
2: learning from doing this podcast because I wasn't aware of it, is fixed income. And people can invest in fixed income in many ways, mainly through ETFs is one of the most common ways these days. But that is an investment, or I'm not even sure of the right way of putting this, but this is a way that investors can access these debt markets where money is being lent to companies for their expansion. And it's an important part for people to consider in their portfolio.
1: It's incredibly important. And I think, Phil, you're doing a great service for your listeners by pointing this out, because what I've noticed is a lot of people, when they think about investing, they think about stocks. The reality is investing is putting your money into what could be a variety of different asset classes of which stocks are one, but bonds, property, infrastructure, and stocks that cover different regions, the US, Europe, global, Australia, can vary quite significantly in terms of the nature of the investments. So if we talk to people about investing, I think there are a lot of people that immediately think stocks, when in the reality is through index funds, or bond funds, you can actually invest in a variety of different asset class types, which I think we'll talk about in a few moments. So you've worked in Wall Street,
2: and um, many people's view of Wall Street comes from movies like The Big Short and The Wolf of Wall Street. What's it really like?
1: Well, there's aspects of Wall Street, particularly when I worked on Wall Street from 1989 to 2000. Those movies probably amplified some of it a little bit for dramatic effect, but there were aspects of that type of behavior, I guess, when I was there. But I wouldn't say that was sort of the norm, so to speak. There were a few interesting experiences I had when I was there. So at JP Morgan, I mentioned some of the regulatory rules that changed that enabled JP Morgan to get involved in different activities, including underwriting of debt and equity securities. And without sort of harping on too long in a story, when you underwrite, or in the case I mentioned before, get hired by Ford to raise debt, you need to have a sales as well as a trading arm to show them that you can sell the bond securities to institutional investors. And then you have traders who then provide liquidity in the markets to support that. And I remember one day, the head of the sales group and the head of the trading group at JP Morgan on the same floor, which was this big expansive open floor that was not terribly different than what you see in the movies, having what I would politely say was a difference of opinion on something. And it got pretty tense and pretty loud. These characters tend to be pretty strong-willed and kind of big New York, Brooklyn, you know, pretty tough personalities. And these two guys, they were about ready to come to blows for sure. And some trader literally jumped up on top of his desk and screamed as loud as he could, let's get ready to rumble. It basically settled the whole room and everyone kind of went back to what they were doing before. Yeah, there were some interesting times. Some of the things probably weren't the greatest behaviors as the markets were sort of expanding and getting more complex but I thought it was a phenomenal training ground and what you learn and what you see was invaluable and yeah so it's a bit out of the movies but probably not quite as bad you would have been there for the dot com crash as well yeah I was that was phenomenally interesting I was in the investment banking business and then the private equity group at the time I wasn't on the actual asset investing side so wasn't trying to pick stocks for example and it was an incredible time to be in New York when there was a level of excitement and speculation about the internet and the telco industry that was borderline surreal. And I just remember going into a coffee shop that I would typically go into before or after work, probably before, because work at that point was late into the night. And somebody pouring a coffee and then shooting back into a room behind the counter coming back out pouring another coffee and they were going back and forth checking their day trades <laughs> and i do remember kind of scratching my head at that point thinking this is um this might not be a great sign in terms of the speculative nature of what's going on that happens there's nothing wrong with that but there was you know i think over the 5 year run up from 95 to 2001 the nasdaq went up 400% or something like that so Easy to say in hindsight, but you could probably see that there was something that wasn't great was going to happen at the end of that process.
0: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
2: Do you think there's any similarities with what's going on today?
1: I think there are some similarities. I don't think what's going on today is nearly as bubble-like in terms of magnitude as what happened in the late 90s, 2001, mainly because, well, the numbers kind of are what they are. Using the NASDAQ as an example was up something like 400% in the four or five years leading up to the tech rec. And it's up something like 150% in the last four or five years leading to now. So now obviously that's been quite steep in the last year based on the sell-off from the previous March, last March. But I think a number of the companies that are driving the growth, are actual companies this time. Arguably overvalued maybe, but they're actual companies that are legitimate. And
2: they're making money hand over fist, as opposed to the late 90s when it was you just had to have a dot .com in your name and uh, suddenly you were listed and flying.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that was the truly incredible thing. If you were an analyst like Mary Meeker and had a respected voice in listing some of these You know, pets.com, all these other things that basically weren't real businesses at the time. And some of them, you know, survived and some didn't. Well, most didn't. But you're right. Back then, there was a lot of money being poured into entities that were basically not real businesses. Now, at the same time, Amazon, Cisco, Qualcomm, and some others also went down, you know, 60, 70, 80%. But obviously, they've survived. So, not to draw too long of a bow, but it does speak a little bit. In terms of the stock aspect of investing, that the element of patience, diversification and riding through the ups and downs. But yeah, it was an interesting time to be in New York.
2: Uh, It was interesting. Another guest brought up the example of pets.com and saying, you know, they were a spectacular failure. However, one of the biggest sectors in Amazon's online sales is pet products. So it's just how, how it's managed by a company is really where the growth is going to come from.
1: I think that's right. I also think it's also just timing. We've seen so many different, you know, I don't know whether Netscape's also one that would illuminate this point, but a lot of times you don't necessarily want to be the first to market with something when it's a new market, because there's an education process and an adoption process that can be long and cost lots of money. But the transformation when it happens and the adoption when it happens can be quite substantial. So a lot of those entities that failed back then, if they were to relaunch today, you know, arguably might have a very bright future, but they, they were out of the gates early and hard and it was new terrain and they required a lot of capital. And as soon as that dried up, bad things happened very quickly.
2: You just alluded to a moment ago, the long-term nature of investing and being able to ride out market ructions like this. And this is part of the democratization of investing that we're seeing at the moment, and part of which is robo-advice. So tell us about that and some of the new tools and uh, ways that people can get involved
1: in investing. Yeah, I think it's, it's a terrific time for anyone who's interested in learning a little bit about investing or learning a lot about investing. The democratization of investment, which you referred to, I think the democratization part is a word you hear a lot because the positive is that Accessibility and affordability have increased dramatically in terms of what people can use to help them in the, you know, start their wealth creation journey and then manage it throughout their life cycle. But one also has to recognize that that means there's a bit of ownership, responsibility, and risk that comes along with it. And there's also
2: an aspect of knowledge. Something at the moment I'm thumping the table about is that, you know, everyone's got these checklists about what you should be doing with investing. And I think one of the first things you've got to start doing is to understand who you are, what kind of investor you are, because let's face it, you know nothing. (laughs) You know, you're coming into the markets, you've got no idea. And so many people lose money because they suddenly think, oh, you know, I've heard about how you can make some money on the share market. I'll do it myself. With no plan. And so you've got to actually know what kind of investor you are. And it's really two parts, isn't it? If you're interested in the stock market, you've got to spend a lot of years learning about it. It's like learning a language. You're not going to pick that up in two weeks. You know, it's going to take you years to do that. Or there is this other alternative where you can go long term, passively, ride out the market ups and downs and just do it in a very slow and basically boring way. But you've actually got to understand who you are as an investor and what you want to do.
1: I think that's exactly right, Phil. And there have been a lot of people who have entered the investing world in the last 12 months. And it's easy to sort of say, based on the activity around GameStop and whatnot. But the reality is that did get a lot of people into investing for the first time. And for a lot of them, they've really only seen, for the most part, one thing over the last 12 months, which is you know trend lines upwards. And the reality is stock markets... And other asset classes go up and down over the course of time. And the real question, as you point out, Phil, is what are you looking for as an investor? Is it short-term? Is it long-term? What is your appetite around risk? Is it high? Is it low? And what are your goals? And having a step back and getting that framework and that sort of scaffolding around your planning is the first thing any person really should, I think, should be doing. And then the decisions need to be made within that framework because without opening the can of worms of behavioral finance, what there is a lot of evidence of for your listeners is that the people that do tend to make plans, when things go askew in the markets and in the global environment, the plans tend to go out the window. That's typically a bad outcome for an investor to abandon a plan or or to make highly emotional decisions. So there is a real discipline with it, Phil, and you're exactly right. You know, Really understanding yourself and what you want to do and having that reference point to come back to is critical. I think the world has changed a lot in terms of financial advice in the last five to 10 years for the better in general. It's a little bit of a generalization, but until fairly recently, consumers weren't really afforded getting financial advice until they had a certain amount of money that made it viable For advisors to serve them, and that was typically a reasonably high number. So you were kind of in fend for yourself mode until and unless you had half a million or a million dollars. That's changed a fair bit with what we were talking about earlier in terms of technology enabling different types of service to be made available to more people. But just taking a step back, maybe a little bit, Phil, the role of a financial advisor has really changed a lot in the last few years. They've become more of financial coaches, financial mentors. They are typically well-versed in helping people with estate planning, with complex financial decisions in their lives, if and when they arise, arguably approaches on tax strategies and whatnot. But I would say one of the biggest roles for a financial advisor is really to help their clients and the consumers on the behavioral side of things. Because to your point, Phil, I think early in one's Wealth creation and investing journey, sitting down sort of with yourself, so to speak, or your spouse and saying, what are we trying to achieve here is definitely required. But eventually, as life gets more complex, getting some advice on that front from a financial advisor becomes prudent and their role largely becomes or can largely become just helping somebody stick to their plan, really helping them navigate through big life transitions and or big market gyrations, that can be quite scary. I think the developments in the future, actually, they've happened now, and I'll speak specifically about that in a second, is around the adoption of technology within the investing, but just more broadly speaking, the wealth management and financial advice space. And a big part of that is the traditional financial advice industry recognizing a few things. One is there is about to be an enormous wealth transfer from the baby boomer's to Gen X and Gen Y, I suppose is the right labels. And if you're a financial advisor and you don't know how to speak to the next generation of wealth accumulators and service them at the right time with the right service in the right way, you're going to have a major problem. And so that's why you see JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, Fidelity, Schwab, Vanguard, Toronto Dominion. I could go on, but they all have now sort of a robo-like service and a suite of tools to start engaging with the younger consumers and cohort to help them with a measure of financial advice, although it might be piecemeal at the start, which is actually called value for service, right? If you don't need the soup to nuts, you shouldn't pay for that. So I think it's actually an incredibly good time to getting involved in financial advice because you know of this transformation where. Technology is enabling business models and financial advice to be made more accessible for consumers. And for the listeners who are the consumers, that's good news because you now have tools like, you know, when could a 25 year old walk into JP Morgan and say, I want to get advice on my investments? Mm. Or Goldman Sachs, they've got a service called Marcus, which is a digital bank offering that they've developed. And they've recently launched a robo service because they recognize that the future clients. Aren't the ones they have now? They're the ones that are going to be inheriting cash, or who are building their wealth now. So
2: it's not going to be any more about um, those glossy brochures with retirees running down the beach, is it? <laughs>
1: no, no. And you know, there's that sort of standard kind of joke, or I don't know what you call it, but if who owned, in New York, the, down near Wall Street, uh, I forget the name of it, but there's this big sort of yacht harbor, and um, the running kind of joke was, who owns all those boats? It's not the advisors' clients; it's the advisors. That world has been sort of turned upside down for the benefit of the consumer, for the benefit of the investor. And that's a good thing. The challenge for, I think, the listeners is to just make sure that you understand, one, investing isn't easy. So do your homework and know what you're getting into and be prepared for bumpy rides because stocks are, by definition, bumpy over time. But that's the price you pay for the likely return over the long, medium to long term. And two is the concept of diversification. When you step back and think, how do I want to manage my investments? Stocks is part of that. Stocks are part of that. But just do some homework on the power of diversification and reinvesting dividends over time, making periodic investments, rebalancing, and some other things that I won't go on about. But some of those just basic foundations of prudent investing that to your point earlier, Phil, sometimes simpler is better and boring is beautiful. And with investing, that's frequently the case. The last point Paul. on this ramble, I manage a robo-advice service here in Australia. We have a lot of clients who will ask, can we invest in X, Y, or Z via Six Park, which is our service? And the answer is no, because our service uses ETFs and is what it is. And I personally and professionally am a big fan of what you might call hub spoke or core satellite, which is if you really want to, for lack of a better phrase, dabble in stocks and you know crypto, whatever it might be. There's nothing wrong with that at all. I think it's great when people want to get engaged with studying an investment and then having a go. I think that's fantastic. I just think that risk management is ultimately an overlay that needs to be considered. So when I say Hub spoke core satellite, you know, you might put, I'm just making up numbers here, right? 80 or 90% of your investable assets on something that is sort of does its thing with ETFs and diversified, et cetera, et cetera. Is that kind of boring is beautiful approach? And a smaller portion is the, what I might call more speculative stock picking, if that's what you want to do. You'll sleep better at night, and you can kind of kill two birds with one stone, but that was sort of a mouthful of ramble. Sorry about that, but <laughs> that's okay. Pat Garrett,
2: thank you very much for joining me on Stocks for Beginners. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thanks to Christopher Sulos for music production out of Garlic Breath Studio. Music flows when the money don't.